there's a disconnect now at a northern resort, in my opinion, between what the experience was as a kid at the same resort versus what it is now with sort of extremely overcrowded facilities on lots of weekends. You know, long walks, not being able to brown bag your lunch, you know, being raked over the coals for a family weekend. So when people find us, you know, you can really see people take a breath of fresh air if they understand what we are. The lifts all end up in one spot. There's space in the lodges. The kids rove around in packs, kind of how it used to all be. It's an experience in a community, um, but it's really just what we are and who we strive to be. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. The Storm Skiing Podcast explores the business, history, and culture of Northeast skiing. Subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter at skiing.substack.com to get all Storm Skiing podcasts and content as soon as they're live. You can download the Storm Skiing Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Pocket Casts. Follow us on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook. Episode 9, John Schaefer, owner and general manager of Berkshire East and Catamount. Have you skied Berkshire East? If not, put it on your list. Whatever you think skiing in Massachusetts is, Berkshire East is not that. This is a rad little mountain. They let the terrain run free, lots of bumps, lots of glades, nice steeps, little cliff drops if that's your thing. Not a lot of ropes around this place. The Schaefer family has run Berkshire East for decades. They've gotten it to thrive in a region where legions of other ski areas shut down. They've done so well with Berkshire East that last year they bought Catamount, which straddles the Massachusetts-New York state line. If you haven't skied Catamount, this is a nice little ski area. It has a ton of potential, and the Schaefers are improving it fast. We'll talk about all of that in a moment. First, I want to give John a shout-out. John was the first person who ever said yes to an interview on the storm. I sent the email out and his reply came back almost instantly. It took a little while for us to make it happen, but we did it. It was a great conversation. Listen to this, and you'll understand why I'm so enamored of these two little mountains. Let's do it. My guest today is the general manager of Berkshire East and Catamount Resorts, overseeing marketing, risk management, construction, project management, planning, and customer relations for the ski, zipline, mountain bike, and recreation businesses. His family has run Berkshire East since the 1970s and Catamount since 2018. John Schaefer is my guest. John, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is awesome. Sorry it's uh, taken a little while to connect. Hey, uh, we're doing it now, so that's the important thing. Uh, I wanted to start by talking about Berkshire East. Your family's managed that mountain since the late 1970s. That's when your father, Roy Schaefer, came east from Michigan. Uh, He grew up in a really different time. He didn't have electricity. He was a self-made guy. He kind of learned to ski and, and taught skiing from some of the greats there in northern Michigan. Can you give us a sense of his backstory prior to coming east and why he was uniquely suited for the challenge of running that mountain? Well, he grew up as a farmer in northern Michigan. And Michigan in sort of the 1950s, 60s, early 70s was kind of like the Silicon Valley of the, the country with all the car production. Mm-hmm. So even though it was a very rural state, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of people uh, coming out of Detroit with some money, uh, recreating up north, and a, and a ton of ski areas opened. It's actually still the second um, highest number of ski areas in a single state in the country, behind New York State. And he grew up, and there was a little. There was a farmer down the road, and there's an explosion of ski, ski areas opening across the country, sort of uh, backyard rope toes and things slightly more advanced than that, and he started skiing, and he was at the right place at the right time, um, because as he became a teenager and then into college, the Michigan ski areas were importing some of the the best skiers in the world to teach their clients how to ski. So he ran into Stein Erikson, Otmar Schneider, a bunch of other Austrian and European Olympians and top-level skiers uh, that really helped him hone his craft. But at the same time, there was a lot of um, a lot of the founders of the sport came through Michigan. So uh, some of the snowmaking innovations occurred there. Uh, the Kirchers, who now run Boyne Resorts, uh, their father Everett was a leader and pioneer in a lot of different ways. My dad was right in the mix uh, as all that was going on. Um, 
but he also kind of grew up in a hard scrabble way. He was in the small family farm, um, basically subsistence type farming, and he could really stretch a dollar. So when he came to Berkshire East, all these pieces of the puzzle came together, and he was able to nurse it through some really long, lean years, um, I would say up until our modern era, and he did a really good job of it. And can you give us a sense of what Roy walked into when he pulled into the parking lot at Berkshire East in the late 70s? What kind of state was that mountain in, and what kind of work did it need to become sustainable? Uh, it was in tough shape, and, and I think in more ways than he knew. So starting with sort of the ownership, it had been in and out of business multiple times, and it had, those had been some tough uh, closures. So it opened first as a very small, rough version of Thunder Mountain, you know, maybe about a, a quarter of the mountain uh, with a couple of small rope toes. And actually somebody even stole the first rope toe. Um, <laughs> How is that even possible? Start. And then uh, then it was recapitalized as the full Thunder Mountain with trails to the summit and snowmaking. And that only made it about five or six years um, before it was bankrupt again and there was a shareholder takeover and somebody else ran it. Uh, and then it switched to Berkshire East largely for credit reasons, you know, so it was a new name. And then it was bankrupt. And it had been largely financed by people up and down Pioneer Valley in Connecticut. So basically the financing came through local banks and customers that needed to be happy to help keep the place going once my dad showed up. So even though my dad walked in and you know basically took it over for a dollar plus the debt, he still had to win over a lot of people who had been burned multiple times by by the the physical mountain itself. So now he's in it at Berkshire East. It switched to Berkshire East a few years before he showed up, and he starts making it happen. Eventually, he had to bring in partners from Michigan, a fairly prominent family uh, from Northern Michigan, and. They purchased another couple of resorts in Michigan as well as their own family recreation businesses, and we merged it all together. And they made it for another 25, 30 years, um, when at the same time a lot of small, similar small mountains had closed up shop around them. Yeah, one of the recent guests on the podcast was Jeremy Davis, who runs the New England Law Ski Areas Project. And we talked about there used to be nearly 200 ski areas in Massachusetts, and now there's barely more than a dozen. And like a lot of the other indies that have survived, uh, it seems like your father kept the resort running through the lean years by making these really frugal choices and picking over used equipment from resorts that went out of business. Um, a history of the mountain that you recently wrote cited equipment from up to 26 small ski areas that either came to Berkshire East or was sold to fund operations. I believe your triple is from New Mexico and your wilderness quad is from Colorado. I'm not sure if I have that exactly straight. But how vital was that sort of thinking to the resort's long-term survival? It's probably you know 90 to 100 percent of the only reason we survived just basically picking the bones off carcasses. And fortunately, you know, the the equipment's very robust. It's meant to, to exist in cold, harsh conditions. So you can uh, pick these places over and find a lot of gems in them. Um, but my dad's ability to hunt out small ski areas and just have a – he was a PSIA examiner out of Michigan, so he traveled to a lot of the Midwest resorts. And he understood what was there, and he, he had a very good memory uh, of what he could pick up. And we still do it to this day where possible. There's just, you know, the the, the ski area numbers are a little more stable than they are than they were then. Yeah, and even when you do put in new lifts or, or new equipment, it seems like you do it in a little more uh, low-cost ways. For example, your Summit Quad, instead of putting in a high-speed quad, you have that sort of medium-speed carpet lift. What was behind that decision, and, and, and why was that the right choice for your mountain? Well, probably to a fault. My family's been in the ski business and done a lot of skiing in a lot of different ways. And though a high-speed quad is fun, and it's a little more sexy for the user to get into, it actually can harm a ski area pretty easily. Um, if it's not well thought out, you can overcrowd uh, sections of the mountain. Right. So we've looked at it first and foremost from a skiing experience. What would it do to the mountain? Uh, we realized that we could actually achieve similar people per hour um, 
as a high-speed quad, maybe a little bit less, um, but without the wear and tear on grips that a, um, a high-speed quad has. So on a, on a short high-speed quad run, the grips come off the, the cable frequently. You know, if, if you have a lift that's, say, 3,000 feet long and one that's 6,000 feet long, the, the shorter lift's just going to cycle more, and those grips weigh out, and they're very expensive to replace. Mm -hmm. So thinking in terms of the long-term viability of the mountain, we couldn't, didn't feel confident in taking on that risk of simply having to replace, you know, three to $400,000 worth of grips, you know, whatever grip replacement cycle. Um, we've always invested more on snowmaking and infrastructure than we have on lifts. So basically, you know, we had the capital probably to do a high-speed quad there, but we wouldn't have had the bike park or we wouldn't have had subsequent snowmaking improvements. So we just had to spread out the money across the entire salary cap. And we try to make those types of decisions um, whenever we operate. You mentioned the bike park, and since you actively took over the resort in 2008 and took over day-to-day -day management, that's one of the many improvements you've made. Among those, uh, a, a very extensive zipline network, um, what's called the longest mountain coaster in the country. Take us through the evolution uh, since you took over from your father, and, and I believe that's what you're referring to when you say the modern era of Berkshire East. Yeah, basically. Uh, my brother purchased the resort or a portion of the resort from our Michigan partners in 2007, and we started making aggressive changes after that point. A um, little background, my brothers and I grew up ski racing uh, really across the planet, so we've been exposed to a lot of the resort towns. Um, and when you ski race, you do a lot of cross training. So we were heavy into the adventure sports growing up, mountain biking. We grew up mountain biking all over these mountains before there was any trails here, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the plan was is to start bringing in those activities that we'd experienced elsewhere because Western Massachusetts is beautiful. There's a great culture. Um, there's a, there's a lot of things going on. It's also very rural and sort of this preserved slice of old New England. And we wanted to integrate four-season activities into primarily a single-season business. So I was surfing in Costa Rica with some of Bodie Miller's Team America coaches, and we went ziplining and decided we needed ziplines. And when we build stuff or do stuff, we try to build category killers. Mm -hmm. um, we can't... You know, we don't have 4,000 vertical here to recreate Lake Placid, but when we build a bike park, we can certainly build a bike park better than anybody. Or if we build a zip line, we're going to build it to the maximum extent that we can build a zip line on our property so that when people come and experience those activities, they get best in class. And when we make snow and we groom snow, we try to do best in class at all times. Just conditions are our number one um, feature that we try to preserve and to create. And so that's how we compete with bigger mountains. Now, you actually brought in the guys from Whistler to help design that bike park. Is that right? Yeah. We build the best with whatever we try to do. So you mentioned your brother, Jim, uh, who is, is a Wall Street guy, and he's been described in the media as the main owner and financial mind behind Berkshire East. Can you talk a little more about how the two of you complement one another to manage that operation? Yeah, so Jim runs um, Jim runs a large group. Um, he's, in, he's in the energy business, so renewable energy financing, utility work. He, he has had a very extensive career, and he has an ability to take on a lot, um, just the way his mind works in his own personal drive. He loves western Massachusetts. He loves the town's um, where we grew up. He loves the opportunity that our local education gave him and the people that he grew up uh, competing with and you know just being friends with from our area. And he wants to support and give back to the communities that gave so much to him. And the way we do it is through the ski area, which is very much a community asset. We employ a lot of people. You know, thousands of kids um, use our facility each year um, and graduate on to other other resorts, and we try to be a strong community partner with the, the small little towns that sort of gave us everything we have. So that's his vision, and 
that's pretty broad, but it also is allows us to hyper focus on what we when we do stuff. If we're going to do it great. We're going to be a category killer. We're going to build facilities and activities that um, our constituents and our community can be proud of. And since I've started working, I've project managed all those, so my skill set's grown at the same time. So we set the vision together. You know, we decide we're going to build a wind turbine, and you know, he works on one end of it, the financing and the application and the how it's going to function, and I, I build it. And we've done that, you know, fairly successfully over, you know, 15 or 20 projects at this point, quote-unquote major projects. Yeah, you mentioned that community, and in that atmosphere is immediately apparent when you step on into the lodge at, at Berkshire East. It's not easy to maintain that as, as you grow. I mean, it's hard to get it in the first place, but um, as you scale up, it's hard to keep it. I mean, some mountains do, like you go to Sugarbush, and, and I think it still feels like an indie mountain. But how do you make sure that as you scale up operations at Berkshire East, you don't lose that atmosphere that makes that mountain special? So there's always a tension there, and it's funny because I'll be telling people when they're hanging signs, maybe don't hang them all super straight, you know, like there's <laughs> some crookedness here and there. And part of it's the people who choose to work with us. So um, a lot of our staff grew up here. You know, they're close personal friends. They understand uh, what Berkshire East is. They understand what it means to them. Uh, Gabe Porter Henry, one of my top guys here, he grew up uh, fairly rurally, um, allowed him to travel the world to move on with his career and before Berkshire East and he credits you know his access to ski racing at a young age is to giving him a certain skill set that allowed him to work his way through adventure and an adventure sports career that includes raft guiding out west internationally leading an international travel company as a risk manager so the people who are here have understood the feel of Berkshire East, you know, when it was basically where Gabe and I learned to ski together when it's 1988, but the mountains probably got more in line with a 1960 ski area in terms of equipment and what the community was then and how to preserve it as we move forward. And it, it's it's on our forefront. The other thing is, is that we're in the lodges. You know, we interact with our guests. Um, you know, for example, a lot of kids are here, families. If there's a kid's mi kid missing, I'm looking for them is the mm -hmm. GM backslash owner. Um, if there's a problem, I or my direct management team probably either knows about it really quickly or we're actually on site working to solve it. And, you know, when, when you have a conglomerate and you have people pigeonholed into certain jobs and careers and back offices and they never see... You know, they never see lift maintenance or they never see ski patrol or they never see the different parts of the job, then I, I think it's really easy to lose touch with what, you know, this multi-generation facility, community facility is and what it was, which is why the history is so important to the place. Right. On, on the flip side of not being part of a big conglomerate, uh, I feel like Berkshire East, it's a tremendous little mountain. I feel like it gets overlooked just because of where it is. It's just south of Vermont, um, you know, it has, it, which has all these resorts that have these huge conglomerates, these marketing dollars, uh, the support of megapasses. How do you compete in this market? Um, a lot of word of mouth, you know, and relationships. I think we've, our numbers have grown through a type of family that I would call a bit of a Vermont refugee, that it's a... It's a type of skier that understands sport. Like maybe it's a I'm 39, so maybe it's somebody my age who's got kids, and they there's a disconnect now at a northern resort, in my opinion, between what the experience was as a kid at the same resort versus what it is now with sort of extremely overcrowded facilities on lots of weekends. You know, long walks not being able to brown bag your lunch, you know, being raked over the coals for a family weekend uh, in terms of pricing. So when people find us, you know, you can really see people take a breath of fresh air if they understand what we are and, w and where we're at, and it's a hard thing to describe to folks. But it's like, oh, my gosh, this place is great. You know, the kids all 
the lifts all end up in one spot. There's space in the lodges. The community of skiers and adults that are here look out for the kids that are on the hill, and the kids rove around in packs, kind of how it used to all be. And there's a really, people get a sense of it, or they don't, you know, and there's a lot of skiers that, that don't look for Berkshire East, and that's fine. Um, but I think our niche is not the volume discounter, you know, that we're just slamming as many people through as possible. It, it's an experience, and it's in a com- very, keep coming back to community, um, but it's, it's really just what we are and who we strive to be. Yeah, when I first found Berkshire East, I was frankly astonished. In general, everything south of Vermont, it they have this let's groom everything flat philosophy. And Berkshire East is what I would call a really balanced mountain. And I can't tell you as a skier how much I appreciate that because you have terrific steeps, glades, bumps. You know, you let some of the hills bump up. Um, but then you have these great long beginner trails all around the mountain. You have good intermediate stuff. Can you just take me into this trail management philosophy you have in, in, in creating this balanced experience for all kinds of skiers? So one, going back to my dad, the the reason he moved out here is he thought the mountain was really laid out well. Um, you know, and it needed a lot of improvement, and he worked at it hard, and we've worked at it hard. But Berkshire East just naturally skis well. So it's not the most impressive peak or face or whatever, but there's a lot of, there's it, there's good flow, and there's really good terrain here. And that's number one. Number two, we all grew up skiing here. I mean, I've skied these trails basically every day of every winter that I could possibly be here. And during the wintertime, I'm on the hill every day. I make snow. I choose where we're making snow. I choose how we're grooming, uh, what we're grooming, when we're grooming. And my crew is very attuned to how we want the place to be. Now, I may point fingers, but the guys doing the work are awesome, and they have a great understanding of our facility, and we couldn't do any of it without them. But we work hard um, on the terrain and the facility. In in the off-season, we do a lot of uh, improvements. If we see that we're making too much snow in a certain spot, we'll regrade so that the fall lines are better, so certain angles of the slope retain snow better, and we don't have to make too much in a certain spot. So you can in-slope and out-slope particular ways of the fall line. And we're constantly improving our facility. Um, So... It's a lot of hard work, you know, it's a lot of sweat equity, it's a lot of money we've spent, so we we try to improve. A, a, a good slope with good angles will retain snow, which means you don't have to make as much snow, which means you can open faster and get more terrain going for people. So we just constantly evolve our terrain, and but it really comes down to a good crew and a lot of hard work. And how hard is it to to find the balance between the the family stuff and the really good expert terrain. Because another thing that really struck me about Berkshire East, and I, I certainly would not say this about a, a ton of resorts in the Northeast, but the, the quality of the skier, just the, the people you see ripping down the hills, including the kids, is really impressive. And it's clearly an area that is alone in that region for offering that sort of terrain. But that's a small part of it when you look at the size of the mountain. So how hard is it to, to get that balance right into to keep making those improvements you just described year after year. So I'm glad you brought up the uh, the level of skier, and that ties into another part part of our history here, which is there's a strong racing component. Not that we're a quote unquote racing racers mountain, but we have created, going back to Bill Farrell and even before that, multiple U.S. ski team members, uh, all Americans. We've, we've definitely swung above our weight class on that one, and. Good skiers, whether you like it or not, are oftentimes the voice of the industry. There's just no way around it. And they also attract other good skiers. And so what you're seeing is the the result of, you know, basically three generations of uh, folks that have grown up in this, quote-unquote, good ski community uh, on the hills. In terms of, of, of layout and, and terrain, um, you know, I'd love to say that we, we played a role in the way the mountain shaped, but that's glacial in nature, you know, it extends way beyond me. Uh, the mountain's just, it's a good mountain, you know, and it's kind of like a, it's an ice cream cone. You know, you can have a an ice cream cone to work with where you can route trails around the back, you know, and have longer distance, which allows for flats and beginner terrain. 
and you can also have the um, the steeps down the face, and that that's how Berkshire East functions. There's you know there's there's the quote unquote front four, not to steal from Stowe, but there's four black diamonds down the center, five with our lift line, um, and then it turns into beginners or intermediates on either side of those, and then beginners on the outface. And a couple of years ago, we built an extremely long, extremely flat beginner trail just to check the box of having this long, I'm going to gobble up a whole group of kids for an hour type beginner trail. That's um, easy. doesn't get away from them in terms of speed. And Is that roundabout you're talking about? That's uh, Thunder. Thunder. Oh, on the other top. side. Okay. Yeah. So there's Outback Roundabout, and those are kind of more of the steppy, little steeper beginner trails. But this was a true, true, true beginner's route from the top of the mountain. And that opened up a whole side of the mountain that eventually we'll finish developing. Yeah, I don't know how intentional this was, but uh, one of the things I like to do when I ski there, I kind of get lost on the bike trails. Uh, yeah. Because, it, it, you know, when the snowpack's deep enough, because it seems to add an extra sort of off-the-grid trail network. And, and I don't know if, if you had any of that in mind or if that's just, sort of a, a positive unintended consequence of the bike park. I wouldn't say it's why we built the bike trail, but it was a happy accident when it happened. And, uh, you know, control's an illusion, so just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> people are going to go where the fun stuff is, right? Yep, let, let them go. Um, all right, I want to shift gears for a minute and talk about Catamount. Um, after, you know, you've evolved Berkshire East, you know, into a all-season resort. And then a couple years ago, you purchased Catamount, uh, down straddling the New York, Massachusetts border from Tom Gilbert, Tom Gilbert and Rich Edwards, longtime owners. Um, they, by all accounts, loved the mountain, but felt like they didn't have the capital to keep it competitive. Why was Catamount an attractive asset to you? A, it's in a great location. So it's just about two hours to Metro New York, plus all the surrounding hinterlands, which are generate a huge number of skier visits in New England each year. Uh, it's definitely a blind spot for Berkshire East. It's tough to get between Berkshire East and Catamount, so even though we share the same state and maybe you know 60 miles of separation physically or even, even a hair less, it's really a completely different market. And it's a real skier's mountain. I don't think we would have purchased... Um, the equivalent of some flat farm field. Like it's over a thousand vertical. There's super steep, super dynamic terrain. There's a ton of beginner terrain, which I never knew existed, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in a lot of ways, it shares some similarities with Berkshire East. It, it, was an, it was an underfunded facility that had a great natural setting, great physical terrain, and it just needed to be recapitalized. And um, unfortunately, got to a point where it couldn't do it by itself, and it needed some outside help. And we have provided that help, and we have a, you know, a, I wouldn't say that we've got a brand, but you know, for better or worse, my brother and I have a vision of what a place should be. Um, and in that market, we think it needs to be one of the nicest small ski areas in the country, and that's what we're making it into. And since we've taken it on. We couldn't. We decided we couldn't take a wait, wait and see approach, so we closed on it in May 2018. We kind of just permitted and stared at it until Labor Day weekend last year, and from Labor Day weekend um, till December, we basically had bit, built what will become the biggest, one of the biggest zip lines in the world. Added a ski lift, cut several trails. Re refurbished their lodges, refurbished the base area, redid the parking lot, which used to be a mud pit, added you know, nearly several hundred snow guns and miles of pipeline. I mean, just took on an enormous amount of work, but got it done. I forgot about and added a whole new lodge that didn't finish last year. Um, then this summer, we stared at it again for a while. It was like a sh last year, if it was like the equivalent of a shotgun blast. We had to take some time to see what worked, what didn't work. And again, this summer, we cut an additional um, five five ski trails, um, one of which is longer and steeper than Hayride at Stowe. Hmm. Uh, we, we're, we're finishing off our third and fourth snowmaking pond. Um, we had another 130 snow guns delivered, miles of snowmaking pipe, and we're finishing off the main lodge that we're in construction on. 
So again, another tremendous amount of work, and it's still under con construction. But we didn't want our customers to sit after we purchased it and stare at the same old catamount for a year, a year and a half. We we felt that there's a huge market there. Uh, we need to show our customers change and positive change. Um, and this this ties in sort of to the feel that conversation we had earlier about Berkshire East. You know, Berkshire East, we did the equivalent amount of work at Berkshire East over a decade. Catamount, it's being condensed into a year and a half. So wow. that customer is experiencing more of an, an abrupt, this used to be quaint, folksy catamount. Um, this is now, you know, shiny, polished catamount on appearance only. And we think that, you know, the changes that we're going to bring aren't necessarily the corporatized changes that people have gotten used to up north, but, but really just the logical, this place needs to function type changes that we think we do, you know. But but the abruptness of it is, is striking, you know, if you hadn't been there in two years. Um, well, but we think it's all positive. Yeah, it, it seems like that speed has really defined how you approach large projects at both operations. You know, from the Thunder Mountain Bike Park to, to now this rapid transformation at Catamount, does that give you a competitive advantage in this current resort climate where we have, you know, Vale sweeping into by peak and, and just all these things changing so quickly. We think there's a lot of stasis in the ski business, you know. See a town like Charlemont and if it were in Norway or Europe, there'd be cool stuff built all over it, you know, and that's what we got to experience when we traveled. And that's what we that's our vision for these communities. Just just really cool small adventure sports communities that are based in around the mountain on a multi season basis. And we're not going to stop working until we achieve it. So speed then is just, you know, it's really just cost. So if you can slam it out and get it done and with our experience add value engineering along the way, then why wait around? You know, we're just moving to get things done and go on to the next project. And at the same time, you know, these are seasonal businesses. You can't. You can't take a ton of time to make changes and to talk about it. You know, people have kids, families, life choices to make. You know, switching mountains, switching passes, are, it's a big deal to to give up a, you know, a, a pass that your family's had for 30 years at one resort to switch to another. So you have to really convince people. And it happens individual and indi by individual or family by family. And so we can talk all day about, you know, good conditions, but unless you really diagnose what the issue is, and at Catamount it was lack of ponds and storage and quality snowmaking equipment, then talk's cheap and our customers, you know, need to make choices. So we're showing our customer that we are making logical changes to make their investment in us a worthwhile one when they buy a pass or a ticket. Yeah, that, that speaking of speed, the speed with which you're changing Catamount is really impressive and cutting new trails. I want to just talk at a, on a granular level about those new trails for a minute. Um, it looks like this season you have a new black going in called Marty's Run, which looks like a nice long trail. Um, and then you have Ripper and Christopher's Leap, two double blacks. Um, I, I don't know if I'm missing any, but can you just talk a little bit about those trails and how those will fill out the experience at Catamount, which sort of leaned green blue before but it looks like this will give it a little more black so catamount back to kind of the upside down ice cream cone analogy catamount's very steep in the middle of it um, the outer edges are, are flatter and that's the easier construction terrain um, a lot of mountains like i described with berkshire east the steeps are in the middle the blues the greens are on the outer edges it's just how you eat up the distance and how these things work Catamount only had one steep trail in the form of Catapult, um, even though Catamount itself for years had marketed itself as a steep mountain because of that trail. It is mm -hmm. very steep. It is nice long pitch. But that was really it. So we decided to add the, tr the complementary trails to that that allow it to have more of the, you know, the front three, the front four that a lot of big-time mountains will have. So that's Ripper. That's Marty's run. Um, generally speaking, I build things. I don't name them. That's always my rule. I don't <laughs> name colors, and I don't name names. So 
There's also an additional blue trail in there that's kind of that's going to be a really cool trail. Uh, it's hard to describe, but it'd be lots of natural turns, um, just swooping down through the woods, similar in, in nature to Sidewinder, um, for folks familiar with Catamount. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Black Diamond Trails are double blacks. They're going to be awesome. I mean, I raced U.S. Nationals at Snow Basin in, I don't know, 1998 or 1999. And quite frankly, you start to get, like, it's big enough and wide enough and steep enough you could see how the pitch would fit into some sort of big-time downhill. Like, it's that awesome. And, uh, you know, we're putting the right guns on it to be able to fill it in quickly. We're fixing the snowmaking supply, the water supply issues that plagued the place in the past. So our goal is to eventually open both these mountains in under 10 days. Wow. Did you... When you were planning out these runs, did you actually walk the mountain and say, we need to run here, we need to run there? Do you bring people in to advise on that kind of stuff, or do you just have enough of a feel for what makes a good ski trail that you're like, yep, this is where we need a black, this is where we need to cut another run? Um, Without, yeah, we we do it with ourselves and with our own staff. Um, We're hesitant with uh, ski area planners. If only not not to be dis- disrespectful to them, but you know we've been at this for a while. We've skied all over, and uh, we think we have as good a handle on as anyone on what a good trail design is, um, and we just build it. And do you these new blacks and double blacks you put in? Do you picture letting those bump up? Do you leave those that to the mountain apps people? What's your philosophy with those? Well, a lot of it has to just do with uh, conditions. I mean, it's it's all fun and games to let, say, one of these things bump up and then you get a freeze-thaw cycle and there's solid blocks of ice for a month. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always been my philosophy. I'll, I'll ski bumps all day long as well as the next guy, but when they become, um, you know, just frozen blocks of ice, you kind of just have to maintain the trail and... Uh, you know, either prep for more snowmaking or tear it under and let it bump up again. Um, it just becomes, they, they can become unmanageable at times. And we right. just don't get the natural snow down here to replenish them. Yeah. And, and one thing you don't have a lot of on Catamount that you do at Berkshire East is glade. You have some really good glades at Berkshire East, Tomahawk Beast, East Glade, Blizzard Island. Do you plan to cut some glades at Catamount, or, or is there just not enough natural snow to make that a focus? I'm all about glades. Uh, I think that part of that is the messaging that's coming from the top. And for us, glades are great. Um, mm-hmm. For anybody listening who wants to cut glades at either mountain, just come find me. Um, I just think it's it's cultural differences. You know, there was a period of time, you know, in the 80s and 90s when, again, people were really trying to control where people skied, how they skied, what they did, you know, tension between the rise of snowmaking. I am non-discriminatory on those things. Again, I think the the heart of the sports and the fastest-growing parts of the sport are the backcountry scenes, the uphill skiing. I uphill ski. I ski around trails in my hometown that aren't part of Berkshire East. Like, it's just I'm way more in line with that culture than I am uh, you-can't-do-this uh, type ski area management, you know, and trying to be in total control of everybody's behavior. So one kind of quirky fact about Catamount, it straddles New York and Massachusetts. Does that cause you any regulatory headaches? Like, do you have to have the chairlifts inspected by both states? Is there is there things that, that are kind of a pain in the butt about that? I think it would have, I would have been much more challenged with it uh, had Catamount not had such a talented and uh, talented staff with institutional knowledge on how to deal with it. So a real pleasant surprise. You know, it's like meeting the family of your spouse for the first time when you walk into one of these things. It's like, well, who's, you know, the crazy uncle? Like, what am I walking into here? And Catamount was just staffed by tremendous people. They worked really long and hard and were really proud of their facility, the work that had done, the, the history of the family and the place. And, again, the institutional knowledge was tremendous, and I'm sure certain that my brother and I gave them way more heartache and headache in terms of the amount of work we tried to accomplish last year and this year than they gave us. It's been a total pleasure working with them. And, yeah, I mean, is it quirky? Sure. It's 
double the mountains, double the state lines, double the fun for everybody. But you just you just work with the state. My experience, having worked extensively in Massachusetts and trying to develop really good relationship with you know our regulators and our elected officials, is that those folks are just doing their jobs, and you just got to meet them and understand them and understand the rules and do your best to work, to work within those rules. So that's just simply my approach. And um, nobody ever seems to unwind state rules, so there's lots of little ones that are buried in the law, and you have to be smart and follow them and read up on them. But, you know, I, I don't think we've had any issues with them so far. Right. Uh, shifting gears here now to just the season pass landscape, curious about your reaction when Vail swooped in and bought up Peak, kind of re reshaped the eastern landscape in one day. Uh, what was your reaction to that news? Uh, a little blase, you know. I I don't know what to say. It's like, on one hand, it's like a 50-story elephant walks in and sits down next to you. Um, on the other hand, I think we play in different spaces, you know. I, I don't know. You know, it's it's hard to say. I it, My experience is, is that Vail has reduced the number of local offerings. You know, they really push people into the epic pass. And so on one hand it might have opened up some space for us, you know. I think that the experience of the, the large pass um packages has led to tremendous overcrowding. Um I am guessing that, that that's gonna happen with some of the local mountains to us that are already busy. So I just think that there's gonna be a flow back to mountains like us. And I know that if we do our job and stay on focus and do what we're supposed to do, which is to provide a really good experience for the people that come here and stay in tune with our customer, then people will find us. You know, so a couple that's months. What I have focus. Yeah. Right, right, and, and and that kind of redid the landscape, and we see this season pass landscape evolving every year. Uh, one of the new offerings this year is the Indy Pass, which you have joined. So anyone who buys an Indy Pass for $199 gets two days at Berkshire East and two days at Catamount, as well as two days at 42 other mountains. Can you take us into your decision to join that alliance? Yeah, so we Berkshire, Berkshire East and Catamount, first and foremost, created our own pass. So... We have four passes. There, if you buy one, you buy both, and we felt that that was very competitive to a very strong local skiers market between both Catamount and Berkshire East, and that encompasses uh, the 91 corridor down in New Haven, Northwest Connecticut, uh, and that there's a lot of people there. So I'm at Berkshire East right now, and believe it or not, there's more people within a 75 mile radius of me than if I were at Faneuil Hall in Boston. Oh wow! So we're in a very strong market. So Northern mountains with their big passes make a lot of sense, but at the same time, if you're skiing and you want two great mountains, then our pass is a great value, uh, and we priced it accordingly. And our performance has been through the roof, so our sales are way up this year, which is a positive sign. So in terms of the Indy Pass, we did feel left out of some of the bigger passes, so Icon, Mountain Collective, Epic, uh, pass, you know, and I don't want to speak, I'm not speaking for ourselves, um, but I know a lot of ski areas wish that they would come in and ease their pain and just buy them out. Uh, <laughs> that's not where we're at. We're fine competing uh, with those guys, and it is what it is, as crazy as that sounds. But we did think that we needed to reach a, sort of like this mid-level market that's a little more transient and interested in the bigger passes. And the Indy Pass really fits with 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 more of who we are. We're very independent. We don't follow industry trends. We try to do things the way we want to do them. And, you know, just the brand itself, Indy Pass, it's us. Um, but that's that, again, it targets this transient skier that wants to try out a bunch of different mountains and to take a vacation out west and have some value for their investment. So it was a really perfect fit for us. And have you ever considered the the Freedom Pass Alliance, which is independent resorts where if you buy the season pass, you get three days at a bunch of other mountains on the alliance? Uh, for example, Magic's part of that. Platykill is part of that. Uh, is that an alliance we you've ever had it, talks with? And we emailed them, mm -hmm. but um, we never got a response. 
I see. If anybody's out there from Freedom Pass, please email us back at Berkshire East. Yeah, that would that would be a tremendous addition because they're they do actually have a pretty good menu of East Coast mountains on yeah. that pass, but your two mountains would fit right in exactly. Yeah. Um, and as far as day tickets go, that's one area where they just kind of spiraled out of control. And you know, you see these ridiculous numbers out west. Day tickets for you know one hundred eighty, two hundred dollars. Um, yours have stayed pretty well under control. Is that a deliberate attempt to keep the sport accessible, or is that just the business reality is what it is? And a little bit of both. So, part of what um, part of the spiral out of control is the uh, it's because of tiered pricing models and how to make them function. So, to make a tier, most mountains have switched to tiered. It's sort of like the Liftopia page. It's why you can buy a twelve dollar ticket someplace and then the window price. So to make those viable, you have to almost have an off-the-charts walk-up window price, which then pushes people into advanced sales. So that's essentially what's going on there. Um, for us, I th my personal philosophy is that there's a handful of drivers um, when you're when you're aware of a ticket price, you're not aware of the full complement of activities. You know, we we offer a ton of different pricing, different times, different periods, nights, day, military, AAA. There's a gazillion prices and discounts. But what people are aware of is sort of the adult walk-up, high-price weekend ticket ticket rate, and trying to keep that low. It's it's kind of how people people use it to compare and contrast other mountains. So that has been a concerted effort. Um, owning one of these things is like death by a thousand cuts, though, on the flip side, which is, you know, increases in taxes, minimum wage. I mean, the, the pricing and our costs have risen, just sort of built-in cost, almost 30 to 40% over the last decade. Wow. So there is this upward pressure on terms of operating costs um, that needs to be absorbed somewhat, some some way and somehow. And that can either happen through increased volume or through increased pricing. And it's simply just a balance, you know. In, you have macroeconomic effects and microeconomic effects. If you raise pricing, you're going to have less, you know, people doing it. Um, but if you can't maintain your slopes, you know, and you can't reinvest in yourself, then, you know, you're also not going to be attracting anybody. So we try to keep our prices um, complementary to the other uh, regional resorts who we think we compete nicely with. Um, we try to have very particular slots, you know, our, our Thursday nights are under $20. We have family nights. The more people you bring, friends and family nights, the, the cheaper it becomes per person. So it's, it's a balance. You know, and we are a community player. You know, we're in a very rural, uh, slightly impoverished section of Franklin County, and you know, sort of quote unquote declining populations of rural America. So we have to take care of our local market. Uh, we compete strongly with mountains up north. So when people are making their decision to either drive up 91 from Connecticut or to keep going drive up 91 and keep going to Okemo or take a west on Route 2 and save some time, they also need to save a little money to make that value because we're not we're not Okemo. You know, we don't have, whatever, a half dozen high-speed quads and huge facilities, but that's not always gravy either. You know, there's big lines, big costs, you know, um, less intimate feel. So well, one, one I don't of those... know if I answered your question, but it's all a factor, you know. Well, one of the ways that you're – keeping costs under control, at least this is my perception, is that Berkshire East is was the first and, and maybe is still the only ski area in the world to generate all of its own power uh, by a combination of wind and solar. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so my brother's an energy banker, and we made a long-term investment uh, to hedge our power, the price of power, um, against what we anticipated to be a rising price of power. So by making the physical investments into energy production from on-site renewable, 
which is great. It's clean energy. It's very uh, high profile. People see it, feel it, think about it, you know, as they're experiencing the mountain. Um, it also makes a lot of sense because we received, you know, state and federal grants. Uh, we're in good wind and good solar sites. And we have a high energy need with a very unique time of year use. So we use quite a bit of energy in very short bits of time. And it was really the first project we did. We did the zip line and the wind turbine. We viewed, you know, summer business and long-term energy costs as the biggest threats to our business. Um, so we went out and met them head on, and we're going to do more. You know, we've signed an agreement to build a, uh, a battery system, which is uh, very unique, hopefully at both resorts. Uh, it's essentially just a micro-pump storage, so 10 or 12 million gallons of water that cycles from the summit of the mountain to the base of the mountain um, as, um, as needed throughout the day, or as, as we're starting to make snow or fire up lifts, and that will, you know, put the potential energy uh, for the facility at the summit. And as we start to go, it just starts running downhill, and we 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 further sever our grid ties. So that'll happen hopefully at both over the next five years. Okay, so you're you're bringing some of those efforts online at Catamount as well. Are you? Yep. Is there going to be a, a similar wind turbine project over there, or, or solar panels, or? Well, the, the sort of the energy landscape is a little different in each state. So New York has made a goal by 2030, I think, to be fairly carbon neutral in their grid. So wait and see on what sort of um, incentives the state has. The So we're not certain where we're going to end up at Catamount, but we're definitely working on the pump storage facility. Um, and then Massachusetts... You know, we're, we're pushing our lawmakers. They need to make some uh, storage changes before we can roll that out in terms of uh, the market. But we think that the uh, the market for storage in Massachusetts will become more clear over the next year or two. And uh, once that happens, we'll have a we'll have a pathway to do it. And this drive for sustainable energy, it, it seems uh, like sort of a family mission. It, it was a Valley Advocate story I read about from about 10 years ago. Um, and it opened with a very tragic scene of uh, Jim's wife, Alyssa, dying from a, an asthma attack. It was attributed to high pollution levels. I, can you talk a little bit about how that tragedy influenced this more environmentally sustainable path for your family in, in the, the running of these mountains? Yeah, I mean, definitely a factor. Huge, huge impactful experience for my brother. Um, really altered the course of his life and you know, really just drove home his, his interest in, in securing Berkshire East for generations to come, whatever form that is. Um, and a huge primary driver of his career, you know, what what impact he wanted to have personally. In terms of our family, um, you know, my mom was Environmental Teacher of the Year in the early 90s in Massachusetts. She led... Um, won some awards from the Audubon Society as well as um, regionally for instituting the, the local recycling program throughout the schools. Uh, my aunt and uncle are biologists who would spend their summers uh, north of the Arctic, you know, studying caribou and, you know, tundra species. And we, we grew up spending uh, uh, weeks on end in sort of the remote Canadian wilderness canoeing with them growing up. So it, it really just comes from our parents and my aunt and uncle um, and how they've pushed us. So my you know, my generation was always inclined to act um, as clean as possible, you know, and to make choices around that. It's sort of just baked into who we are. At Middlebury, I, I didn't quite finish my environmental economics degree. I think I'm a, a science class short. But I basically focused in my major in environmental economics, and my advisor was um, ran the program. So, you know, a lot of this just, it simply just makes economic sense. I mean, maybe not now, but the way the, um, the, the grant environment was and the state funding, state and federal funding in the, the late, you know, or early 2010 timeframe, sort of the, the end of the George Bush area, the start of the Obama 
there was a lot of incentives to build wind turbines, and we built them, you know, or built one. And then the same thing with the uh, the solar initiative, and we were ready when the time came. Um, and our sense is, is that storage is headed in the same direction, and we're going to be right on top of it next time it comes up. But it just doesn't, you know, the big stuff's easy, right? Like you see a wind turbine, it's 300 feet tall. We heat with our own wood at Berkshire East. When we build things, we we try to do it um, by the trees, you know, deadfalls. There's ash borers in the area. We've been building a lot of ash recently. We have a sawmill on site. We do as much as we can. We have a beef herd. We serve the meat in our restaurant. Um, we try to just work with locals, our hands our you know our community and generate and do as much as possible wow yeah it sounds like you're really building a model for how a sustainable small community can function uh at the same time as as you're building out as you described earlier those communities in europe where you have more of a, a total experience so you don't just come to the mountain and and go there's a lot of uh things to do there and it, it's a place someone could settle for a few days and really really have a, a whole different experience and and really see where everything comes from locally. But one more thing before I let you go, John, is, is we talked a lot about Catamount, but not about what's in store for Berkshire East this season. You want to just run down real quick what skiers can expect when they hit the slopes of Berkshire East? Yeah, so we just unloaded a bunch of new snow guns, new used, because that's our, we already discussed this, we play in the used markets. We have uh, expanded our snowmaking capacity through pumps and water storage. Uh, we've regraded a lot of terrain. Um, we're doing the any, any trails specifically you want to call out that you uh, regraded? Just at the base of exhibition and our beginner trails, as well as uh, widening lots of different trails. So top of exhibition, uh, crossovers between Big Chief and competition, Katie's run, uh, work on Flying Cloud and Lift Line. I mean, you know, Russ doesn't sleep and neither does our maintenance crew. <laughs> so... Um, there's just a lot of new things. A, a sore point for a lot of our guests was our bathrooms in our new lodge. They got an extensive makeover. Quite frankly, it looks more like a, uh, a hotel of a nice or a lobby bathroom of a nice hotel versus a ski area. So again, turning weaknesses into strengths. Um, right. Painting, uh, cleaning. I, I took a crew into the lodge and I didn't show them the stuff that people touched on a day-to-day basis, but I sent them into the corners. You know, everybody's got a, a junk drawer. Or a, you know, cobwebby section of their basement. That's the stuff we fixed up in our facility this summer. So when you look in, it's not like anybody can make the big room look nice, but what do you do about the basement hallways and things like that? So we straightened a lot of that stuff out, gave a nice facelift to the facility. Bathrooms are a big one. Snowmaking, we always march forward on snowmaking, so we're getting ready to make snow on Friday. And, um, you know, basically we're turning this thing into shock and awe. And, uh, when I started, it used to take us 10 days to two weeks. Um, we can open in probably about 26, 27 hours now. Wow. So hopefully we're open. We sh- we're open for biking this weekend, and we're open for skiing next weekend. And um, it'll be our earliest opening ever, and we're just ready to rock and roll. All right. Well, I can't wait to get out there and see it for myself firsthand at both mountains this winter. Uh, I will hopefully see you on the hill. I really can't thank you enough for your time today, John. Thanks, Stuart. John Schaefer, owner and general manager of Berkshire East in Catamount. So much good stuff there. Catamount skiers, I bet you're feeling real good about your mountain after listening to that. The Schaefers have a plan and they are making it happen fast. Just ask Berkshire East skiers how good of a job that family's doing. The only thing they're going to be mad about is me bringing more attention to their mountain. Don't worry guys, the place isn't going to get overrun. But John and his family deserve a lot of credit for what they've built up there, and they deserve your support. Go check out both of these mountains if you haven't already. If you like that interview, go to iTunes and leave us a review and a rating, and tell your friends about the podcast. Also, tell them to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. That is the only way to see all of the Storm's content as soon as it's live. Also, follow us on Twitter, at Storm Ski Journal, and on Facebook. Next up, Lisa Lynn editor of Vermont Sports and Vermont Ski and Ride. Lisa knows everything there is to know about skiing in Vermont. The depth of her knowledge is tremendous, and she will join me on the storm to talk about all the hot issues in Vermont skiing. We're going to talk about the past wars. We will talk about what will happen to Jay Peak and Burke. 
We will talk about the future of the Hermitage Club. We'll talk about the sale of Sugarbush, and we'll talk about a whole lot more. I will be taking a couple of weeks off from the podcast for the holidays, but look for that interview with Lisa on the week of January 6th. In the meantime, you can catch up on episodes one through nine. Thank you so much for your time. I'm Stuart Winchester. I will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.